You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. So, two, Carrie, two weeks ago you were here, where I am now. Was it two? Cool. So, two weeks ago, Carrie preached a fantastic sermon on prayer, also from Luke, which is where I am today. And she gave some really great illustrations about printers. And I cannot agree more about the bane of my existence, known as technology today. Uh, I've had a bit of a morning with all things technology, as well as five-year-old's shoe choices. And so when I think about the opportunity to preach, as Taylor often says when she preaches, and it's not lost on her what it means for the pulpit to be available to everyone here at UBC, I think part of preaching as it is at UBC, being given to all genders, is part of the imagine day, that is the image of God in each one of us. And so as I rush in with a child who can't decide on what shoes or socks, and then the socks aren't the right length, because the shoes, I don't really understand, but this is a newly minted five-year-old's tr- tr- troubles. And then I'm sitting out here, and my, they're all gone now, right? Sweet eight-year-old is trying to open the communion cup and like splatters the blood of Jesus everywhere. But by some miracle, I think, I think my white skirt is okay. And I'm just thinking, you know, these are important things for us to experience as the body of Christ that, you know, not every church gets to hear from with their male pastors just don't experience on a Sunday morning. So I'm just being honest with you today of where I am and um, where we'll be today. As I bring myself and I bring um, all of my, well, interesting situations. So. I do have, let's see how this goes. Will you rotate? You will. Great. So, as we return to Luke's gospel once again, I'm reminded of an English teacher or two, a few trusted first draft readers of blogs, sermons, speeches, Whenever I find myself seeking feedback, I'm reminded of a familiar theme. I have a tendency to try to do too much and make the reader or listener do too much work on their own. Whether I get a little too poetic so that the intended message is undefinable, I'll bet I may get so poetic that the intended message uh, isn't so much the issue because I've wooed you enough to forget, Or I've opened 14 paths, circled back to five, reverse course, only to introduce an alternative possibility. If you're still with me, I can get a little too heady. I can be one to take too many creative liberties or just flat out get lost myself. Maybe like you've lost me now. Is Megan Glover here today? I always take these risks when people aren't here. Well, Megan Glover is part of our congregation. And she used to be 
my graduate assistant at Baylor. And so I wanted to bring her in on a presentation I was doing to give her some experience as a young grad student. So what I was gonna do in this presentation was I was gonna do the majority, it was a long presentation, but I wanted to make sure that she got some chance at presenting, that's part of what we do with our grad students. And so I was gonna give her a section. And so I'd brought her in and I was explaining all the things that I was gonna do and then where she would come in. And I had post-it notes where I was kind of rearranging like order of things and you could come in here, you could go there, this works here, this works there. And the look on her face was, well, painful. And so I said, Megan, I'm sorry, I just wanted you to know how my brain works. And in the most innocent Megan way, she said, but I don't wanna be inside your brain. That's scary. Ouch. Do you mind pulling up the Luke text again from today if you can? I don't know if we were to pass around critiques on clarity, if the blame would be two parts Jesus, one part Luke, or vice versa, but what in the world with our passage today? We go to the next slide if we can. What? It starts out really sweet. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And it ends with, but this, if the owner of the house had not known at the hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready. The son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Is this a bait and switch altar call? Someone explain this. And then I remember, that's my job today. So maybe my tendency to tell stories that whines too much, that take too many creative liberties, maybe it's because I learned my earliest stories from the parables. Maybe it's not because I'm from Texas after all. Last month, I preached from Luke as well, and the story of the Good Samaritan, a seamlessly less controversial story now, but certainly not then. I talked about both the lectionary, which is a guide containing readings from the Old and New Testament for every week of the year in a three-year cycle, a rhythm in the life of our church and many churches around the world, and in other words, I did not pick and pair the scripture readings today. What I want to talk about is what do we do when we land on a passage like this one? Whether it's a lectionary or you're just your common study at home or you happen to flip open a Bible and you see this, what do you do? What do we do when we land on a passage that makes us uncomfortable, confused, annoyed, bored, conflicted? For instance, how do we approach a text that centers the relationship between the enslaved people with their master? Is it even relevant today? 
Should we skip over these passages when we feel that flash of embarrassment that they even exist in our sacred texts? I almost did. One of the best ways to begin when we read a passage is to read and see what we notice, trying not to look immediately for meaning or a lesson. I confess I read and I read and I read some more. I thought about preaching from the psalm or even the passage from Hebrews, but even I'm not that confident. What I've learned from years of preaching is usually the passage you want to preach the least is the one you should preach the most, so here we are. I found myself stuck between our Genesis 15 text, if we could pull that back up at any point, no rush, with Abram being promised something akin to a prosperity gospel coffer, except his exchange would be a covenant. I mean, what's with this dismissal of Ishmael? If you don't, yeah, here we are. So, you have given me no offspring, so an enslaved son born in my house is to be my heir. If you don't mind the next slide. But the word of the Lord came to him, the man shall not be your heir, no, but your very own issue shall be your heir. I mean, Ishmael has a name. We know from other places in Genesis, he has a name, and it's not despised by God at all, nor his mother Hagar, who has seen by God. And then for the grand finale of utter frustration, are we supposed to be grateful in our verse here in Luke for a master that feeds the people he's enslaved, or do we take note to be eager as for those as those ready at a moment's notice because they waited all night for their master while he indulged and they did not? And all week long as I read, the thing that kept coming in my mind is, why the enslaved? Why the enslaved? Why the enslaved? What is the reason that we have these two readings that seem to just so flippantly take a note of the enslaved? I couldn't get past it. Last month, I also talked about Jesus as a wisdom teacher and what that means for how I approach the parables in particular. Jesus was many things, but first and foremost, he was a rabbi. And a rabbi is a wisdom teacher who will push us to ponder, not necessarily hand us easy answers. This is difficult for our Western minds to wrap around. We are a people of standardized tests, multiple choice, single answer, scantronable tests, and all the greater say amen. The following is an excerpt from a curriculum from Cardia House, which is an organization that I run. Unless you think, I can't believe you're about to quote yourself, I just want to be sure that I say this because I need to um, give credit to Josh Ritter here. This is where the wisdom tradition is very helpful to us, all who have learned to view religion in one monolithic way. It's especially helpful to those of us who have or are com 
contemplating leaving a faith tradition because of this oversimplification that does hold up as truth. Jesus, as a wisdom teacher, is calling us to embrace paradox. How we get there is through the teaching of Jesus as a, from a wisdom perspective, which is primarily to say a non-literal interpretation of Jesus' teaching and parables, but it's more than this. Approaching Jesus from a wisdom perspective is also to approach him through the lens of spiritual ideas regarding self-ego, the false ego, the true self, the dualistic mind, and the non-dualistic mind. It's to approach him with the realization that all of his teachings are focused precisely on ending blame, judgment, and violence, attitudes of aggression and possessiveness. His teachings are about ending all of the polarizing things we still bring into our lives today and pushing us into utter mystery. Mystery being with a capital M. If it wasn't with a capital M, I'd be off the hook to say we could stop right there. Eh, it's a mystery. I know I've probably done that thing I said I'd do at the beginning, spun in circles a bit. But if you'll hang in with me, I'd like to take this information back to the story today. One of the biggest downfalls of using the lectionary, which I still love doing, is that as we are reading our Bibles in the same way, we're using these heading marks. Story for story, we lose all these context clues. Can you imagine reading chapter four only of your favorite book? Nothing else? What about the second book of a five-part series that you love? And your friend says, oh yeah, I read the second book. Eh, I don't really get it. And you think, well, I wonder why you don't get it. It's my favorite. Would you please read them in order? I want to tell you a little bit more about what Luke has been working up to to get us through these eight short verses that got us here today. I did actually have a slide for you, but speaking of technical difficulties that are on me, that's where we're at today. So just right before this, in Luke 11, here's where we're at. So we start off with learning to pray, which Carrie set us up for really well, and the complicated nature of pers persevering in prayer. Then we have this really fun thing where Jesus casts out a demon who then comes back and brings seven more buddies with him. I'll let you read that one. Then we move into the This Little Light of Mine passage. You get your song there. The end of chapter 11 is a doozy. We move to where a Pharisee and some lawyers, these religious leaders, invite Jesus to dinner and they duke it out. They want to ask Jesus these questions to trip him up. And there are a lot of those woe is you phrases when you know there's some pretty big um, not happy Jesus moments. But I'll read this one just to give you a little hint. 
Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Yikes. So then here's where 12 starts. So as all that's happening, meanwhile, as their dinner party is getting, well, not less party, more spectacle, a crowd of thousands gather, trampling on one another so they can see what's happening. And then these stories unfold, these parables start to be told, which is one of these. So a little bit better context. At first, Jesus exhorts them, don't be afraid to confess in front of authorities, in front of the authorities. You should be more afraid of blasphemy. That's, um, you want to talk about putting some gauntlet down right there. Then someone in the crowd baits him again and says, hey, teacher, my brother, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. In front of thousands, the height of the crowds. And instead, Jesus tells the story of the rich fool. If you remember the story, it's a man who has the grain and he keeps building larger stores of grain and then he gets taken away. And he says, why are you storing up treasures here instead of treasures in heaven? You should be rich towards God. And then we move into a passage you've probably read completely separately as well about don't worry about where your clothes come from or your food. Ye of little faith, consider the birds. Um, I read one translation that said consider the ravens, and then I started thinking about consider the grackles. And I definitely don't worry about the grackles. I think they're doing just fine. So that made it feel a little bit differently, which is why when we start with verse 32, and he says, don't be afraid, little flock. Aha. Now we see why we're calling them a little flock. And he moves in, and he talks about being watchful, because he's already talked about with a rich fool dying before he could do anything with the things he had stored up about these birds and lilies having just what they need for the day. He says, little flock, don't be afraid for your father's good pleasures to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make your purses for yourselves that don't wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near you and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. And here is where I think we get lost again because Luke, I think, absolutely believes that the time of Jesus' return, or I'm sorry, our less contemporary readers would read this and say, well, Jesus is coming tomorrow, as Luke was writing to the Gentile audience. He's putting in all of this work as if to say this story matters the most because 
we have to be ready. And then we're looking and saying, well, we're still here. You know, with all of this context in mind, we can see Jesus is probably more frustrated than I was earlier this week. Is anyone listening or watching at all? Jesus, throughout, you know, before where I read, continues to heal the sick, cast out demons. The Pharisees want to talk about Sabbath practices and tithing. He tells the people who keep worrying about their possessions he's got it covered because they aren't the ones that are rich in God with his, what he wants them, which is what he wants them to think about. His own disciples are lost most of the time, as I think I would be. And let's be honest, he tells the story of the watchful enslaved persons, and which is just after where our reading, sorry, he, when he tells this story of the watchful enslaved persons, just after what, where our reading stops, which isn't where the story stops, the Catholic lectionary actually goes further, so if you want to go home and keep reading the story, it gets stranger. Um, the next verse, Peter says, a Jesus, was this story for us or for everyone? And that's not me being silly, that's verse 41. Peter, I'd be playing semantics too here, buddy. Poverty, privilege, to not care about possession. Not evil, but it's complicated. I think we take out some of our frustrations of what to do with our fear of losing our wealth and possessions on the poor who we don't understand. Are you really talking to us? How many of you know what fourth wall is in acting? How many of you have seen Deadpool? I'm still missing some. Well, a few more of you got there. It's when a character talks to the audience as if they're right there, which you really aren't normally supposed to do. It's as if they are part of the story. Luke actually does this some through Jesus, where Jesus seems to have this omnipotent way of way of knowing what people are thinking and saying, this internal monologue thing going. And I admit that I've done a little bit of that too in this preaching. It's where the character takes the audience places where they typically wouldn't get to go. And I've been taking you through this process of excavating a text, walking you through questions and complications and hopes you have picked up some tools for yourself, and also to communicate the importance of approaching scripture with both reverence and curiosity. I wanted that to be a communal experience this morning, but it's also my responsibility to leave you with something more to chew on. When I take the entirety of where we've worked through today, I am struck by the conversation, the comparison, between rich and poor. When we look at Luke's gospel as a whole, it's often called the gospel for the poor or social justice gospel. And it's easy to see why from the framing of the beginning in Luke 2. It doesn't 
take long to see that maybe is also then the gospel for those who are not. I've often found it easy to gloss over the passages related to the rich, especially here today in Luke 12, just because before our text, when we talked about that rich fool, um, I'm not going to hop in and self-identify there. Yeah, rich fool, that's me. My eyes are going to go from parable of the rich fool Lilies of the field, do not worry, watchful enslaved. Which one am I going to pick? I think we all run to the do not worry and the lilies. Better yet, we're Googling anyway, and so we just go to the passage that we like. We miss that context. We're missing something that's happening here in Luke. But when I get really up close and personal, when I decide to be vulnerable with what I read, I am struck by the theme of possessiveness, of lack of faith and trust, of looking for what the bare minimum requirements are, and that does feel like a privileged position. I have something to lose, so I hold to it tightly. I believe I have something of value, comfort, security, status, or I want those things, so I ask leading questions, like the man in the story of the Good Samaritan, just who is my neighbor? Do I have to sell all of my possessions? Can I go back and bury the mother first, the rich young ruler. I began to identify much more. And then there's the Pharisees who were deeply persecuted and now have power and status and see a way to protect the faith they love from the perils of the world that almost destroyed them, and they want a way to keep it. Jesus says, look at the meek. Look at the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a video that I brought with me today, and I, as they get it ready, I want to give a little bit of a framing and a caveat to it. Um, it's from the musical Town. Um, some of you may have seen it or heard the soundtrack. I got to see it in 2020, actually, like a week before the pandemic. It was kind of wild. And the song itself is called Why We Build the Wall. And before that maybe makes you shut down, I want to say that the song was written 10 years prior to any such conversations in our political landscape. It's just what happened, and the themes may feel striking at times, but if you can kind of put that political conversation aside and listen lyrically instead, we'll get somewhere different with it.
build the wall. My children, my children, why do we build the wall? ground, Orpheus is writing this beautiful song, but below ground as people get weary of the changing or lack thereof of seasons, they go to Hades for help, and that help is promise of purpose and work and security, and so they go down to Hades, and they always have work, and they always are busy, and they always have purpose, but they forget who they are, they forget their names, and they can't figure out how to get out. And 
the question becomes who's suffering? Who is rich and who is poor? Those who are above ground that have to want for food and, and wonder about if winter will come too soon, if spring will come again, or those below who have all their needs met, but all they can do is work and work and work on a wall that never gets built. And I wonder when I read Luke 2, 12, and Jesus talks about this rich young a rich fool who just wants more and more storage for his grain that he never really gets to. And we divide ourselves by the things that we think make us who we are. And the things that we think will get us to where we want to go. And Jesus is saying, in my upside down kingdom, in the paradox of mystery, I invite you to be faithful and to wait. Don't need to take much with you. Does that mean that we don't Help the poor? Of course not. That is never what I intended here. But poverty, not the monetary poverty line, poverty is defined very differently. I'll close with this. I hadn't necessarily planned this, but... So I'm about a month out from a secure job that I loved very much at Baylor. Been there for eight years. It's really the only job that I'd ever had that was secure in that way, salaried, good benefits, all the important things. And what I realized about myself, this is not for you if you work at Baylor, but for myself, was that I had grown more attached to the privilege of being in Waco and working at Baylor. The ability to maneuver certain circles, the ability to swipe into a game or cafeteria, to use the library, to know the, the happenings of town, to know who's who, to be in. But there's a cost for chasing certain types of notoriety and in this call to the kingdom, Jesus is asking for something different. Because the ones who are ready aren't afraid to leave anything behind because they're not holding tightly. Because they have not been so lured by possessiveness and judgment of what it means to have not. So please be mindful that I am not making direct comparisons 
to the enslaved people. That is not an analogy I am going to ever move towards. But for his day and age, that's the analogy that he made. We see, are we a people willing to consider what it means to follow Jesus into the mystery? What it means to live in the paradox of the kingdom where our most important possessions are those of the kingdom and where our most important relationships get us nowhere.